0: It is literally all in what we say. It is all, it is all in what we say. What we say exposes the inner part of our heart. What we say reveals arrogance or humility what we say shows either a curiosity or a self-assured pride and judgment. It's all in what we say. Another person listening to us who knows nothing about us can very quickly identify who this person is by the way they speak. They can learn very quickly what they value and what they scorn. So it's not surprising that Pastor James, after talking about looking into the perfect law of liberty, after he begins to speak about being a doer of the word, not forgetting what we looked like in the mirror, after he speaks about the person who does is the one who is blessed by God. And then he turns to the very heart of the matter. James, the first chapter. Now, he's going to talk about several issues. But they're all going to be in the context of a person demonstrating through speech and action what their relationship to God is or what it is not. So we find in the third chapter that he spends almost the entire chapter speaking specifically about the tongue. And then the last part of chapter 3, Very interesting. He begins to talk about the manifestations of what the tongue has demonstrated, what the tongue has shown. Now, it's not easy to talk about because it really exposes our hearts. And one of God's desires is to have our heart uncovered. You cannot repent until you've looked in that perfect law of liberty, until you've looked deeply into the scriptures and you have had a vision, you have had a picture painted for you, you have had a You've had an understanding of who this man on the cross really was and who he is today. It's necessary that we have that vision of Christ on the cross and that then we have the vision of the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ. These two things, these two visions, two understandings, will very much shape for us what our tongue will say. He begins in chapter 1, verse 26. It's almost as though everything he has said up to this point in chapter 1 was simply preparing the way for him to now address the question, if anyone among you considers himself to be religious or if any one of you considers yourselves to be a Christian, but you don't bridle your tongue. It doesn't say cut your tongue off. It says bridle. You take a wild Mustang and you break him. In the process, you bridle him so that he can be controlled. He can be directed. He can know what your will is. He says, if anyone among you considers himself to be religious, not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his heart, this one's religion or this one's Christian faith is useless. It is of no value. Religion or Christianity, pure and undefiled before God, before the Father, is this to look after orphans and widows in their difficult circumstances to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So he's being very clear with us that the agenda of the Christian must always be focused on caring for those who are having a difficult time. Caring for those who have perhaps lost their job. Caring for those who don't have enough food to eat. Caring for those who are heartbroken. He's using orphans and widows because in that day, orphans had a very difficult time surviving. And widows, their husband gone, they can't go out and work. They have a very difficult time if they have no men in the family who can help provide for them. They were homemakers. They were the ones who cared for the children. Now, there were exceptions to this. Lydia was a seller of purple. She had no husband, evidently, in the New Testament, so she was a businesswoman. There are businesswomen in the New Testament spoken of. The New Testament is not against a woman being in business. But the New Testament is very concerned for those women and those children who have no way to care for themselves. It's a general principle spoken of in many places through Scripture that the primary focus of the Christian heart Needs to be to care, to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Love is to be the principal rule for the Christian church. Secondly, is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In 1st John, 1st John, the second chapter, this very familiar passage needs to constantly be lifted up and held in mind, beginning with verse 15. You must not love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone may love the world, the love of the Father is not in him in other words the christian understanding of the scripture not of today but of the scripture is that a man or woman must keep their focus in two places one caring for others and two keeping oneself unspotted from the world, not loving the world, not loving the things of the world. The apostle John continues in first John, the second chapter, verse 15. If anyone may love the world, the love of the father is not in him because every conceivable thing, which is in the world. Now, he's going to list in three quick slashes everything that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the conceit of life. We can expand those very quickly. The lust of the flesh, the sexual desire that is outside of the realm of the kingdom of God, the lust for pleasure, the lust and the desire for the comfort of life that rules over us, that our first rule is, how is this going to benefit me? You know, the call for the Christian is to constantly be laying down his life for his brother, for his sister, to open before them what it means to be in koinonia, or fellowship one with another, the lust of the eyes, all of the things we want. The lust that rises up that says, I must have this. Or the conceit of life. Look who I am. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I have. I'm better than you are. The whole conceit deal. And he's saying, it's not of the Father, but out of the world. So the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But the one doing the will of God. Continues into the age. So he's talking about. Not giving ourselves. To the love of the world. To ambition. To comfort. To pride. To selfishness. All of these things are exposed by what we say now it's interesting in verse 18 in 1st john children it is a last hour and just as you heard that the antichrist is coming even now many antichrists have come the apostle john is the only one who Talks about the Antichrist. Robert Law, who was a very godly Puritan, he wrote about this. He writes the prefix anti denotes not opposition simply, but opposition in the guise of similarity. John uses this term of the corrupt influence at work in false teachers who were disseminating a Gnostic interpretation of Jesus' person in place of the biblical revelation. The supreme danger of any false system is its power to deceive by the opposition of similarity, to promote itself in the guise of christianity it is significant it is significant moreover that it is not in the world but in the perversion but in the perversions of christianity that saint john finds the embodiment of the idea of antichrist now I was always taught as a child that the Antichrist was going to come at the end of time, and he would be the ruler over the earth. He would be against the church. But here the Apostle John is speaking about the Antichrist in similarity. That is, he's saying that people are going to come among you who call themselves Christians, and what they speak to you will be an Antichrist teaching. If you want to learn more about this, read carefully the book of Jude. Now, what was the Gnostic teaching? That Jesus and the Christ were two separate persons. The teaching is that as a piece of gold can be immersed in filth and then lifted up out of the filth and washed and the filth is gone, the gold has not been altered or changed. And so the Antichrist teaching of today that is deceiving many, many Christians is the false teachers who come and say to you, when Jesus died on Calvary, he declared you righteous. looks at you, he sees himself, and he sees his righteousness while you continue to walk in sin. It's called the sinning Christian. This is a Gnostic teaching that is anathema in the scriptures, but the scriptures have been twisted in similarity so that men can come and teach this wicked lie that the blood of Jesus Christ does not have the power to break all sin in your life and set you free that instead the devil is going to continue coming and ravaging you, and you're going to continue sinning day by day. But don't worry, you're part of the family of God. You can't be kicked out because you are saved. You can't lose your salvation. That's what they teach. That's an antichrist teaching. It is It is against Jesus because it devalues his blood. It says the blood of Jesus is the same as the blood of a bull or a goat. It can only declare you righteous, and when you die, you will be made righteous. And those of you who have listened to any length of time to this broadcast of Pilgrim's Progress, know that I have taught from many scriptures and shown you that the blood of Jesus Christ breaks all sin. I lift up the blood of Jesus Christ as the most powerful and beautiful element in all of the universe, that when Jesus died on Calvary and shed his blood, he meant for us to turn away from all evil and to be unspotted by the world, but to be pure and clean. And the pastor of the New Testament church, James the Just, is saying to us, look carefully at what you say, because what you say with your tongue will reveal whether or not you are unspotted by the world. In other words, the tongue reveals everything. The tongue reveals whether we're arrogant, hard-hearted, prideful, whether we're humble, and curious, and open to the moving of the Holy Spirit? He goes then into a very interesting discussion. You may think it not associated, but it is closely associated. Chapter 2. My brethren, you must not hold... The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. This is James, the second chapter. Now, if a man may enter into your synagogue wearing a gold ring in fine clothes, and a poor man may also enter in shabby clothes, and you may look upon the one wearing the fine clothes, And you may say to him, you must sit here. (coughs) Pardon me. I don't know where that sneeze came from. You must sit here in this good place. And to the poor man, you may say, you must stand there or you must sit here under my footstool. Did you not make distinctions among yourselves and you became judges with evil thoughts? I want to digress a moment. There is an organization called Black Lives Matter. George Soros has funded it to the tune of $70 million. Somebody, specifically this old white man, and others like him have an agenda of tearing America apart. Our president has done everything in his power to ignite civil war, racial war between black and white. I'm very disturbed by this, and I am coming to you boldly today saying that a Christian cannot participate in Black Lives Matter. In Jesus Christ, all lives matter. Now, am I saying that there is not racial disparity? Of course there is. But Black Lives Matter and President Obama really do not care about black lives. They care about a political agenda. And I'm speaking of this because many of you as Christians will be tempted to involve yourself in racial conflict. And James is saying, do not separate with partiality the poor man from the rich man. I might also add from the rich man from the poor man. There is no partiality. There is no division to be brought into the body of Jesus Christ. At the National Prayer Chapel, we have men and women from a number of different ethnic backgrounds, but I say to them there is not black or white or Hispanic or Asian. We are one in Jesus Christ. We are all red. That means we treat each other with respect, with regard, with support, with kindness, with love. We do not separate. Now, let me say this, even though it may upset some of you. In Washington, D.C., many young people and older people are murdered each year. In Chicago, it's by the thousands. But Black Lives Matter does not care about these black lives. They only care about the political opportunity. Now, in Charlottesville, what happened in a police shooting in Charlottesville, the policeman who shot was a black man and the man he shot was a black man now there is a black city council the key leadership of that city is all black so it's very clear that the rioting the mayhem the kicking in of windows the destruction of property the the looting of walmart Really is not about a racial issue. It's about a poverty issue. And I can tell you that if I lived in the inner city of a number of our great cities in this nation, I would be a very upset person. I would not like being trapped without work in a ghetto. To me, the government has instituted policies that have destroyed the inner-city families. They have created poverty and a welfare system that keeps people imprisoned. They have destroyed the small businesses in America so that small businesses are taxed so heavily that most of them in America are slowly dying, just as our family farms died. There is an agenda at the highest levels of our nation to rip apart, to change the fabric of America. It is a socialist, communist agenda. Is it surprising that Brennan, who heads the CIA, voted before he joined the CIA for a a communist party person for president? In other words, what I'm saying to you is that there are many unjust things happening in America. There is racial disparity in America. There is hopelessness. In America, there is abundant poverty in America. That breaks my heart. But the call of the gospel is a call to come out of the world. And it is the job of the church not to join in tearing apart our nation, but to preach righteousness and brotherly love and harmony and to do everything in our power to help those who honestly cannot help themselves. It is our job to remain unspotted by the world and to be peacemakers. It is our job as Christians not to spark flames with our language, but to speak in such a manner that people have hope. And a way out of their desperate situation. And Jesus Christ is that hope. And associated with Jesus Christ is the way out. Now I speak this to you as a person who grew up in abject poverty. I grew up in a very small, maybe 900 square foot home. Anyone looking at it would say it was a shack and that we were white trash. But my mother and father had a very clear understanding of right and wrong. They both worked hard to instill in their children a moral value the difference between right and wrong. They worked very hard for us to be clean and orderly, for us to respect others, to work hard. And very frankly, the gospel of Jesus Christ gave me an escalator to ride up out of that darkness of poverty. Wherever the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached, in the darkest corners of Africa, in the most sophisticated nations of the world, Wherever the true gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached, people have been brought up out of poverty. And they've been taught a new way to live. And they have learned the basic fundamental principles of godly living. And those who would accept had their lives totally transformed and they became sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. It's clear that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is rare today in America. And we are watching as our nation devolves into bitterness and separation and hostility and racial strife, strife between rich and poor rich people taking advantage of poverty to cause people to want to vote for one party or another. It is all of darkness. Now, I'm being very straight with you at the risk of alienating many of you. But I want to be very straight and clear with you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a rich man is no more important than a poor man. And a poor man is no more important than a rich man. In the kingdom of heaven, what matters is whether you have a heart to reach out and help your brother, whether you have a heart to remain unspotted by the wickedness of the world, And your eyes are on another city, the city of God, coming down out of heaven. You see, I love America. But I am a citizen of another country. My home is not here. I am here, but temporarily. And while I'm here, I'm going to do everything in my power to speak a humble word of love and direction and support for my brothers and sisters. Because I want to take a crowd of you with me into that kingdom above. I don't want you to be lost. And so I come, I give all that I have, I speak a plain word, saying don't get caught up emotionally in all of the lies of organizations that want to separate the races or that want to create hostility and thuggery. You don't want to be a part of that if you're a Christian. You're going to call sin by its right name. Now, all of this, Pastor James is speaking to his church. He says, But you, you dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and they drag you into law courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name having been named for you? If you carry out the royal law, According to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself, who is my neighbor. My neighbor is anyone who is hurting, who is downtrodden, who is poor. My neighbor is anyone who has been beaten up by the system. My neighbor is any person that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is my neighbor. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. This is the royal law of God. This is how Jesus functioned while he was among us. He could go and eat with the rich tax collector. And call him to be a disciple. He could call the sophisticated Judas to come and follow him. He could call the humble fisherman, Peter, James, and John. He could speak to the workman. He could speak to the prostitute. He could speak to the one who was utterly cast out. Caught in adultery to be stoned and say, Is there no one who condemns you? Go and leave your sin. Jesus was not about speaking with his tongue in a way that condemned any group of people. Instead, his words were to call men and women to the gift of love being offered by God the Father in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So this whole issue of partiality, he then leaves and he says, Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So you must speak, and so you must do as the ones being about to be judged by the law of liberty— for the judgment is without mercy to the one not having shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we condemn someone with our mouth, we are judging them. And Pastor James is saying, "Where's your mercy?" I understand." why some of these young people are rioting and burning and looting. They have no moral training. They have no gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they need Jesus. When you take Jesus out of the picture... When you take the moral values of the Judeo-Christian ethic out of a culture, it is reduced to an animalistic level of survival of the fittest. Where the life of a man or a woman no longer matters. It becomes a jungle. It becomes a place of lawless gangs committing the heinous crimes of ISIS, where you simply slaughter people in every creative way. You sell your soul to the devil. Now, there is yet in America a slight remembrance of a moral value found in Jesus Christ we must not lose one moment in proclaiming that gospel to the lost and to the dying. I do not condemn those who riot. I don't call them names for I know what their problem is. They are filled with in many cases, justifiable rage because of the circumstances of their life, many of which are not their responsibility. But what they do, what they say, reveals the content of their hearts. Just as what you say and you do reveals the content of your heart pastor continues what is the benefit my brother and if anyone may claim to have faith but not have works we're going to deal with this in detail soon But now I want to go to chapter 3. Almost the entire chapter 3 is given to this subject of the tongue, what we say. It's not just what we say with our tongue, however. That's a symbol for what we say in our spirits. What our inner language is. My brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, my brethren, and that word for brethren can also be for sisters, not many must become teachers, knowing that we will receive greater judgment. In other words, he's saying, be careful if you want to be a teacher of men and women. I recognize that I am held to a higher standard than you are if you are not a teacher. Pastors have a very high responsibility before God, and we will be judged, especially if we teach a Gnostic gospel. For we all make mistakes. He's speaking now about the tongue. We have all said things that were not the best things to say. If anyone does not make a mistake by what he said, this man is perfect and able to hold in check the whole body. In other words, if he is, if a man is perfect in the sense of being fully mature, complete, you notice we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us and we direct their whole body. You also consider the ships being so great and being driven by violent winds are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the desire of the one steering may wish. So the tongue is also a small member talking big. You consider how a fire so small sets aflame a forest so large. Now the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity. So the tongue is set in our members, defiling the whole body, setting on fire the course of nature, even being set on fire by hell. That's what's happening in the rioting in our cities. That's what our president has been doing with his tongue. He's been setting on fire America. For instance, every kind, both of animal and birds, both of reptiles and things of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one of man is able to tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless God and the Father, and with it we curse the men having been made in relation to the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. The spring does not pour forth sweet and bitter water out from the same opening, does it? My brethren, a fig tree is not able to bear olives or grapevine figs, is it? So no spring is able to produce salty and sweet water. Now let's look carefully for a few moments at this question of the tongue. What I have said today is a revelation of who Pastor Ray is. I cannot hide that from you. I have with my words revealed my inner heart. I have with my words revealed to you a heart of love, but of a straight word. You know me By my words. There are some people I simply don't like to be with because what flows out of their mouth is judgment, self. It's interesting. You sit in a small group of people, and very soon people will begin to open their mouths and demonstrate who they are. They'll begin to recount stories. They'll begin to speak in ways that will set them apart as someone important. They will begin to take a prideful position, and if you address that, they will become very angry. They will be offended. other people will sit in silence and they won't say anything and they remain a mystery. My dad used to always say to me, Raymond, when you go somewhere, listen, keep your mouth shut and you'll learn a great deal. And you won't reveal to the people how foolish your heart is. You won't reveal how insecure you feel inside. So keep your mouth shut. And if an opportunity comes to care about somebody, then say something nice about them. Say something kind to them. It's amazing. I... I went to a coffee shop this morning to try to drink a hot coffee and get my voice cleared for today. And this pleasant woman courteously helped me. She served me. And I said to her, thank you. I don't know how to tell you how Wonderful it is for me to be able to come here day by day and get a hot coffee from you. You're always kind. You're always pleasant. Thank you. And she looked at me and she said, my dear, you're welcome. Thank you for coming. I look forward to seeing you every day. That was the exchange between us. This precious young woman, working at a job that pays very little, (laughs) so pleasant, so kind, she revealed to me her inner heart. It's amazing to me what a kind word will do. A word that is not condescending, but a word that is absolutely honest. A word that encourages. Now, if I'd come into that shop angry, bitter, a frown on my face, as soon as I opened my mouth, outward of poured, abrupt demand. I sometimes, now that I don't have a wife, I'll go to a restaurant to eat. And I listen to people who order their food. And they'll say, I'll take, and they tell them what they want. What a difference it makes. If you say to the waitress or the waiter, may I please have this and this? Their whole countenance changes. Suddenly they know they're dealing with a person who respects them. My mother used to always say, Raymond, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I think that's a pretty good rule of life. Our words from in our heart and the words we speak out of our mouth reveal the true character of a man or woman. Anger does not serve the kingdom of God. A young person this last Friday night, talked about this issue. She said she went to an office for a specific reason. There was someone there who was going to do something for her. She arrived there and discovered that the person that she needed to speak with would not be available for a half hour. And she said, immediately, anger rose up in my heart. How can they be so discourteous? Surely there's somebody here who can help me. And then immediately she said to herself, that is not Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And so she said to the woman, thank you very much. I'll just take a seat and I'll wait for her. She sat down in the seat and almost immediately The woman came to her and said, Oh, we found someone else who can help you right now. And she said, How happy I was that I had not been angry and bitter. How is your tongue today? How is your tongue today? Is your tongue filled with bitterness and anger, or is your tongue filled with Jesus? You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. I'd love to see you on a Sunday. Come visit the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage. You'll find your address and directions. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. Have a wonderful day in Jesus. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory